Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Darren Hood. Darren is a principal product designer at OmniCell, the world leader in pharmacy robotics. There, he champions product design and coaches other designers, cultivating a culture of curiosity, clear communication, and collaboration. But to do Darren's work experience justice would frankly eat into too much of our precious time together. (laughs) So I am going to summarize by saying that since 1995, Darren has worked as a design practitioner and manager. His experience spans many industries, including automotive, technology, financial, and medical for both Fortune 50 companies and agencies. Darren currently serves as an adjunct professor at Kent State University and Lawrence Technological University, where he's helping to prepare the next generation of UXs. He is also a member of the corporate faculty at Harrisburg University of Science and Technology. Speaking of university, Darren holds two master's degrees, one from Syracuse University in Information Management and the other from Kent State University in User Experience Design. He is also currently most of the way through a PhD in Educational Leadership at North Central University. A passionate educator and contributor to the global UX community, Darren is the host of the podcast, The World of UX. He is also a regular conference speaker, blogger, and podcast guest sharing his refreshingly unfiltered views on the field. And now it's my pleasure to welcome Darren live from Southfield, Michigan to this conversation on Brave UX today. Darren, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Wonderful introduction. You nailed it. Well, you <laughs> nailed it. That was all you. I just wrote it. What? Oh, <laughs> yeah, but that was, I, I love the way you presented it. Yes. Thank you. And thank you for thank you for giving that shout out to Harrisburg University. That's great. To, it's that. really great to have you here, Darren. And I uh, I also really thoroughly enjoyed researching for today. And something that I left out of your intro there, which which I wanted to bring up because I thought it was such a fascinating little sort of side conversation to have with you, is that mm. I learned that you're a former amateur bowls to a champion and a previous professional bowler with two three hundred games. So oh, for wow. people, yeah. So for, <laughs> so for people that don't know. What type of bowling are we talking about? Oh, my God. You're talking about the kind of bowling where uh, we don't just walk into the bowling alley and grab a ball off the rack. Uh, (laughs) Pre-pandemic, I purchased somewhere in the vicinity of 260 bowling balls in the last 10 to 12 years. (laughs) (laughs) Just a few. All just to get that one little bit of an advantage. Mm Mm-hmm. Every time. So uh, I currently have about 15 of those balls here Mm -hmm. and I do not come into the bowling alley with less than five at any (laughs) given time. So it is so that, yeah, so that that's the kind of bowler. And just what is a 300 game and how rare is that? Uh, 300 game is 12 strikes. That means all there are essentially 12 opportunities to strike in in one game of bowling 
And uh, if you bowled a 300, then you got 12 strikes. So as we say here in gang. as we say here in New Zealand, we're a little understated. That's pretty good, right? It's uh, almost non-existent. I, I think <laughs> that uh, you ask how, how often does it happen? I don't know the statistics, but I know it's extremely rare. And even when you do it, it takes some luck. Basically, something went your way. Something happened that shouldn't have happened. And when you don't get a 300, you're you're actually happier about the games that aren't 300 for, yeah, for yeah. some reason. But but uh, yeah, it, it it is rare. It is rare, and I'm fortunate to have done it twice. I get the sense that you might be a little bit competitive. Very, but only at the right times. What, what, is the right the, what is the right time? Let's go into that. What constitutes the right time? Oh, wow. I, I, it's funny you mention that. I'm doing a series now on my podcast called uh, Emotional Intelligence and UX. And there's one of the red flags that I call out, and I call it detrimental ambition. And and I don't believe I said this on my show. I think I did say it, but it hasn't aired yet. And in the segment that we, we did to have me air it, I talk about how I absolutely will not compete with a coworker under any circumstances whatsoever. If somebody is on my team, I'm not going to compete with them. I'm not trying to look better than them. I'm not trying to get an upper leg on them. Nothing of that sort. But if I'm playing a game and competition is part of the game, well, when it's time to compete, I'm going to compete. If I'm playing chess, which I like to play, I'm going to compete. So if competition is part of what it is, part of the, the structure of what we're doing, I compete. But I'm really, really big on when it comes to teammates, when it comes to other UXers, things of that nature. I love building people, Brendan. I, I absolutely love it. I will bend. I, I, I refer to myself as bending, my, bending over backwards and tying myself into knots to do whatever I have to do to make sure that somebody else can be successful and, and will lay down my life in a sense, figuratively speaking, and have done so to make sure that other people get what they need so that they can be the best that they can be. So I'm not going to compete. And, and I've actually said that before and angered people because I said I wouldn't compete. I, I have a saying that whatever you touch, Excel at it. So, Speaking of relentless, and, and, do you know where, yeah. where you go if you type relentless.com into the browser? No. It goes to amazon.com. That's what Jeff, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Bezos registered that as another domain for Amazon when he started the company, which is a bit oh, of an aside. But I do want to come. funny. <laughs> yeah, well, and so true, isn't it? So yeah, I do, I do yeah. want to come to emotional intel- intelligence with you. Yeah. But just before we do that, you mentioned – uh, that you were a bit of a lion and I watched your TED talk, the garrison of excellence enabling the lion within. And there was a picture that you had in that te- TED talk, which I'm sure you know very well. It was yourself as a young boy. You were dressed in white shorts and a white shirt and you were kneeling on a wrought iron bed. All right. So it's a very specific photo. Yeah. And given the title yeah. of that talk and that photo, it made me, quite curious, Darren, as to your background and your story. What is that story? What's that story of that little boy on that wrought iron bed? And where oh did you grow goodness. up? What was it like? And when you reflect back on where you are now, how has that story unfolded? Wow. That story, man, if I remember correctly, that picture was taken when I was about two and a half years old. I could already read. <laughs> <laughs> I was the entertainment at at family functions and events. <laughs> look, look, this little kid can read. They would give me the newspaper and I would read it. 
my mom raised me to be relentless. Basically, she was, I didn't do well at it, but she tried to teach me three languages before I was five. I did, however, still excel. And I was triple promoted out of kindergarten. And my mother said, no, I found this out later. I, I did, They didn't tell me this earlier. I found out later. I was triple promoted out of kindergarten because I was too smart to put in the second grade. But my mother was concerned that she didn't, my mother went through the same thing and didn't want me to suffer from an interpersonal perspective. Mm. So she only let them double promote me. <laughs> uh, the thing that nobody expected, and I loved excelling at school and, and, and that, that whatever you touch, excel at it is, has been my mindset my entire life, as far back as I can remember. We fast forward from me being in the second grade and getting beat up all the time because I was smart. Yeah, fast forward to me being promoted out of the second grade. The next thing that comes to mind is, well, I got beat up because I was smart when I was a kid. So I I got used to excelling in the face of, of extreme adversity. Uh, and I found that out because kids would beat me up and my mother would come to school and then the parents would all talk. And I remember the conversations that they had. Why did you, why do you jump on him all the time? Cause he's smart. You know? So I, I remember that that's what happened. Fast forward a few years beyond that. Well, let's actually, and, let's, let's go, let's stay in that space. Right. Yeah, so sure. you mentioned you were raised by your mother. When you, yeah. when you mentioned that, what I, what I heard was that your mother was a solo mother. Yeah. She yeah, was. Was, my, my mom and dad separated when I was one. Yeah, so I've I've got a, a similar story there, and so I, uh, when you said that, I I kind of get you, in, in, in some respects, well, at least get you from the perspective of what I what I have lived. But I wanted to ask you about your mother mm-hmm. um, because there's often a special relationship between the children of solo mums and their mums. <laughs> who and this and is we a, didn't have it. <laughs> oh, you didn't have it. Well, that's interesting. No. Tell us about no, that. No, we did not. So when you're we facing this not. adversity at school, you're getting beat up by people for being smarter than they are, which is, is really telling of the world that we live in. <laughs> yeah. Who was it that, that taught you to overcome these obstacles? It's funny. I cannot single out one single family member, including my mother, that instilled that in me. Mm-hmm. Not one. I was, I, I was so smart, quote unquote smart, that uh, talk about home alone. I would get left at home alone a lot when I was a kid because I could fend for myself. So just left me at home. And and my mother refused to go on aid. And so she worked two jobs and I would be at home. And, but going back to when I was four years old, I was left at home and I was four as well. And I, well, I'm lonely. So what does a lonely kid do? God knows. What I did was I would go in the phone book and call people <laughs> because, I, <laughs> because I was lonely. And I would befriend people and hold these conversations. And my mother eventually found out and put an end to all of that. But I don't know what I learned from those people. I only remember one person that that would talk to me that I really talked to quite a bit. And I remember her instilling certain things in me. This really older, elderly woman. Her name was the last name in the phone book. So I called her. <laughs> and, and But a lot of them, I just, I remember wanting to be like Martin Luther King Jr., when I was a kid and I remember once I got beat up and I refused to fight back because I wanted to be like him. You no, know? and so that there's an impression there. I remember once and I told the story recently and people were really cracking up about it where I got beat up. I refused to fight back. I was laying on the ground, prostrate on the ground, <laughs> just there. 
And, and they get up and go home, Darren. And I refused. No, I'm going to be like Martin Luther King. I still remember saying that. And I just laid there and they had to go get my mother. And they literally slid me into the back seat of the car because I refused to go home. I refused to get up. So on top of the fact that there, there's a relentlessness, you even see it. I was determined to see something through to the end. I was determined to, once I, once I was focused on something, that was it. That was it. It sounded like uh, you wanted was, them to beat you up properly. <laughs> like <laughs> you guys haven't beaten me up properly here. Keep going. <laughs> and it was it was amazing that curiosity it just such a driver. So I always want to learn about everything, whether it was spiders or diseases. And I had my mother gave me all the encyclopedias, and I would sit there and go through these encyclopedias. Everybody else is running around outside, and I'm looking at encyclopedias. I used to have to do homework before I went out to play as a kid. I used to have to press clothes before I went out to play. So a little bit different than a lot of other folks. And no, to I'm this with day, you. I will press, I press my you. wife's clothes sometimes now. Too, but. <laughs> it <laughs> but sounds like you were an only child. I was my mother's only child. Right. Uh, my dad, I actually have a Japanese brother and sister. Mm-hmm. My dad got married when he was in the, when he was in World War II. So to tell uh-huh. my age a little bit, but I had a job. I never met them, but I know that they exist. I don't know if they know I exist, but I know they exist. Uh, there's five of us. So four kids that my dad had beside me, and the, but I'm my mother's only. And funny thing about that, I learned something about only children that folks don't know, is that if you want to get something done and you have a choice, you have three people to choose from, pick the only child. Because the, uh, the, the the stereotype was that only children were spoiled and brats and, you know, just nasty. You don't want to have to deal with only children. But research actually proved that only children were the most resourceful because they had to, we had to do everything ourselves. And so when you fast forward X number of years and you need something done, the the, the only child is going to be the most resourceful of the group on average. You know what, Darren? I'm going to agree with you wholeheartedly here. (laughs) And that's because I am also an only child. (laughs) The drive that we have, the imagination that we used to have to use, the creativity and the things we had to do uh, was completely different. It was completely different. And and so I'm, I'm glad that I knew that. And it kept me from being gaslit about being an only child and stumbling into the stereotypes because what people said about only children, I never saw it. I know that there are some that are, but I've seen folks that are not only children that are far worse. Uh, matter <laughs> of fact, the research that I that I looked at said that, forgive me, two child uh, household <laughs> kids, but it's the 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 sibling rivalry between two child households made two child households the worst of the scenarios, according to the research, so, because they fight all the time. I. I fought with no one. <laughs> Let's fast forward now to Darren of now. I was listening to your podcast recently and I've actually heard you say this a number of times and that's, and I'm paraphrasing, you've said that you feel indebted to the discipline of UX and you are also someone that strikes me as being a very intentional person and quite careful with the choice of words that you use and being indebted is not something that's not a, that's not a light word to use, right? Like that's quite a significant word. Why do you feel that way about this field? Yeah, I, I recognize my path in UX as many UX, early UX practitioners were, they didn't call it UX in 1995. 
I was doing user, uh, usability research, but I didn't call it usability research. I came to learn that that's what it was, especially guerrilla research in particular. I was work on information architecture, didn't learn about that until like 98, 99, and I was already doing it. I didn't know anything at the time about cognitive load, but I was trying to make sure, retrospectively speaking. So, so I'm doing all of these things and I'm engaging and I'm learning and looking at the books and there were no classes that I could go to at the time, at least not like what we have today. And, and I, I, when I talk about being indebted, I, I think I've been afforded a ton of phenomenal opportunities because I, one of the things I've found is that the places where we work has direct impact on our trajectory. So if, if I am working at, you mentioned that I worked Fortune 50, I worked in automotive, I, I'm working now in medical and I worked, did a little work in medical before. I've worked in the financial services industry. I, I, I've worked for, in, in education. Uh, I've, I've worked in a lot of different places, but what I found was that where you work determines the types of things you will work on. And then the types of things that you work on yields certain types of experiences for you, career development, uh, acumen building, things of that nature. The discipline has been good to me. It has, it, I have been afforded against a ton of opportunities. I've worked at a lot of different places. And the, the fact that the discipline has been good to me, I, I feel a responsibility, which is why I quote unquote fight uh, as I do, because I want other people to have the same, as many opportunities as possible as I had. If, if people really want to develop, then they have every right to be able to develop. People want to learn, they have every right to learn. And, and I feel that being in a position to download things to other people, to give them afford them many of the same experiences I had, I want to be able to give that to them. So the podcast, when they, when Michigan State came to me and asked me to do my podcast, I had been on the radio for eight years prior to that. And I thought, you know what? We can tap into my knowledge of that. And I I could turn this out. I had already been doing a lot of educating in UX. I already been doing a lot of writing in UX. So for me to turn around and produce something, it really won't take any effort. So yes, I, I opted in not to be heard, not to be a star, not to become a UX celebrity, which I think is really happening at like epidemic levels today. It was for the express purpose of giving back because of that sense of indebtedness. So that's what drives me to do the things that I do today. I'm indebted. And so I'm indebted and I will continue. I can, I can never pay that debt off. So I will, in my mind, so I just continue to pay on the debt by giving back to the discipline and educating in any way I can and building people and reviewing portfolio. I have so many private sessions. People don't even know about it because I don't advertise it. But when people ask me, I usually comply as long as I can, because I'm not going to do it to my own detriment, but as long as I can, yeah, I do. And I help people out and point them in the right direction. You use the word continue to fight in order to, yeah. and I'm going to paraphrase now, right? So like, just correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but in no, order to afford others the same, <laughs> the same benefits that the field yeah. has afforded yourself and your Absolutely. brand that you've put out there, I believe recently is UX uncensored. And I feel yes. like people are going to get a really good taste, a refreshing taste of <laughs> what that is on this conversation. Well, I certainly hope that they will. What is the story behind that need to fight behind that need to be uncensored? Because again, that is a very potentially provocative word yes. and it suggests that you are not happy 
with the status quo. Yeah. And I'd say I'm, I'm going to address that first. I say not that I'm not happy, uncensored, although I'm not happy, but the, <laughs> but the uncensored is more about no holds barred. Uh, I actually just rolled out my World of UX website uh, today. I, I just rolled it out. And it's the, there's a byline on the site that says the no holds barred UX podcast. <laughs> That's really what uncensored is about because a lot of people, there is no shortage of people talking about how to do the work. If you want to learn about research, somebody's talking about what to do with regard to research. If you want to talk about information architecture, not as much content today, but it's still out there. Interaction design. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on out there. So certain information about UX is plentiful. Uh, It might not all be accurate, but the attempts are there still constitutes. It's plenty. It's plentiful. It's going on. A lot of the things that I talk about is not plentiful. And frankly, here's a UX uncensored moment for somebody. In my studies, in my review, especially of people who have been around for 20 plus years, (laughs) basically our discipline suffers from extreme cowardice. People know that there's a lot wrong in the discipline today. They know that misinformation abounds. They know that people are the hiring process is grossly dysfunctional, that educational efforts, they, they still, edu- the higher learning is still behind when it comes to UX education. And then of the one, the programs that are out there, I have cited, I have instances where they're putting misinformation out there in, and, and they're drawing people into their programs through the misinformation. That's pretty, that's pretty ludicrous. Let's go into that because I know education, given your background and given what I know of you before this conversation, education is clearly, and higher education, university-style education, is Mm -hmm. clearly something that you are deeply passionate about. And even since a very early age, like we were talking about when we first started chatting, you know, reading before you were sort of three years old, (laughs) there has been a massive explosion in the last five to ten years of boot camp-style training vocational style training to get into this industry. And there's also been, I wouldn't say it's quite to the same degree, but there has been a a number of uh, universities that have also put their toe in the water when it comes to our discipline. Yes. How are these boot camps and these new university courses, how are they impacting for good or for ill the, the discipline, the field that we work in? They're impacting it for good because they're giving people accredited resources that give people a chance to go through a program and get the quote unquote paper that some of the professional corporations want to see. So the paper requirement, the paper requirement that some organizations have is going to be fulfilled through that, that a boot camp or something else simply won't do. Some companies, they want to see a degree. And, and if they want to see a degree, then you need to at least be in, have it in progress or, or have completed it. That, that's not going away. Not, not the way some people try to get people to think. But on the flip side of that, the way that many of the UX educational programs are structured, whether it's higher learning, what we know as MOOCs, Massively Open Online Courses, uh, MOOC is the acronym. Uh, those abound today. The boot camps, the certificate programs through the universities, such as Cornell. I do recommend pe- that one to people from time to time. The many of these programs are not structured properly. UX is a science and so is education. And 
there are things that need to be in place in order for education to be properly executed. And if they're not in place, such as pedagogy, uh, how was the curriculum structured? What is the learning experience, the LX? What is the path that that we're offering the people? What what is what's in it for the student? The whole with them thing. What's in it for the student if they come to your to your institution? Uh, those things, all those things, need to be thought of and carefully carefully planned out and executed in order to roll out the proper learning experience. Very few institutions are doing that. And and it's actually the same things that are going on within the discipline that are not good are happening. And they're the same root causes in the higher learning that's happening there. People who don't know anything about UX are putting together the pedagogies. And then in some places, the pedagogy is put together on a whim. Like the boot camps started, UX boot camps started about 2011. You can go into the Wayback Machine and look up Career Foundry and the General Assembly and look at their early website and look at what they tried to sell people on. You you can see it. And it was wrong. It was somebody realizing that, hey, people want to learn about UX because every, they, there was this dearth of qualified candidates. And so if we don't have enough people to fill these positions, we if more people need to be educated about this, hey, we can put together a school. So they did it to chase after the standard economics, supply and demand. There was a demand for UX people, and, and the best way to do it is to get them at least pseudo-qualified. We can make X amount of money, and we can charge them between seven dollars and $25,000 a head to do it. And as time has shown, people opted into that. Even though there was bad pedagogy, there was no ethics. Education requires both. <laughs> there were uh, people graduate from boot camp one week, and the next week they're teaching. That's not good. Well, let's that go into this, actually, because you're, you're touching on some quite tangible clues that people uh -huh. can look at and to assess their educational options. I mean, you obviously have the benefit of a quarter century plus in the field. You obviously have the, the benefit of being university educated um, to a high degree. And so you're able to look at this, look backwards and, and also project forward what these experiences are likely to be for prospective students. But if you think about it from the perspective of someone who might be 20 years old, who has heard a lot about UX, thinks it's really exciting and is looking at their options, what mm -hmm. are some of the clues that or things that they can look for to evaluate that pedagogy, to evaluate the quality of the instruction that they are likely to receive? How can they tell whether or not they're actually going to get a quality UX education? Because I imagine that these boot camps aren't going to go anywhere and not everybody's no. going to be able to afford the time and, and money to go into a university education. So what can right. people look for? Right. When people are evaluating, I'm going to flat out make it easy and say, avoid all UX boot camps. <laughs> I'm just going to flat out say that. There we go. That's un unfiltered right there. <laughs> it is. But yeah, because it's like they violate all the major things that a proper educational experience requires in order to have a sound structure. They don't have any of them. What they have is what we refer to when you look at the the dynamics associated with the snake oil salesman. Back in the 1800, you will find the same exact principles being in place. And so a bunch of promises and providing supposedly a way to make it easy for you to get it. And then they prescribe some type of big benefit you're supposed to get. It's the same exact template as the snake oil salesman. So there is no pedagogy. You don't have quality instructors. 
You have them making these attempts to try to find people who will who will validate them or sign off on them or approve of them, even though those people didn't go through the boot camps. These are just people you can go through and find a Susan Weinshank endorsement. You can find uh, even a, I believe it was a, a Don Norman endorsement, something way back. But I've seen that in places. Those people didn't graduate from the boot camps, folks. It, it's and the fact that they say it's okay. Look at the timing of it, and, and you'll find that some of these quotes are very old. And it was a good idea at first. The boot camps were a good idea, but over time, when you as you revisit it, turned out well, good, it was a good idea gone wrong. So just. If you want to get a good education, nix the boot camps. You're you're better off the UX boot camps. You're better off if you you can't go the route of a degree. And I'm on record talking about this. You have options. You have self-taught. You have university programs. And one of the reasons I recommend Cornell is because it will give you exposure, structured exposure to the discipline with sound pedagogy from an accredited institution for only about $3,600 U.S. And it's online. And you don't have to worry about throwing away your, it it doesn't cost you an arm and a leg. You're not engaging into an experience that also infuses you with bias at the same time. Uh, And I won't even get into why I I mentioned it, that I'll cover that uh, on my podcast, uh, talk about that. What what I mean when I I say that, in short, uh, people don't just get, exposed to things that they could have found just by looking them up on Google uh, and then paying from seven to $25,000 for it. People also go away with this, this cult-like impact on their cognition when you go to the boot camps. And that's one of the reasons I'm so feverishly against what they do, because again, it's not structured right. And then you're getting more than you actually thought when you go through it. So, but again, you've got self, you got the, the certifications, you've got self-taught, where you can just get in books and hook up with a a sound mentor, not these cookie cutter mentors that ADP lists. I'm not a fan. I'm on record of saying that multiple times. Somebody connected with me recently on LinkedIn. I said just I mean, they were a mentor. I said just so you know, I don't usually connect with mentors from ADP lists. I'm just telling you. Okay, thank you. Well, I appreciate it. All right, I'm sure we'll have a conversation later because it's cookie cutter. It, it's another cookie cutter thing. Where did you come from? Where? How long have you been doing UX? If you have time to do what you claim to do, I, I'm not buying into that. It's just, I just, I don't know too many people who have time to do what some of these people claim they they can do from a mentor perspective. It's just not a good, a good, a good look. Uh, so those are things you can do. There's only one, I want to throw one more thing on this part. I do recommend David Travis, who wrote the book, Think Like a UX Researcher, User focus. Uh, has a Yes, he has a, cor- a course on Udemy. I do support him when it comes to the MOOCs. And I have referred people to the University of Michigan Coursera course. It is, the lessons are peer-reviewed, but you can supplement that and make it better. Uh, but the cool thing is it's offered through an accredited source with real teachers. You're going to have to do peer review on your work, which is like worth completely worthless pretty much for peer review from a grading perspective. It's a good exercise, but when it comes to grading, my grade came from somebody that knows as much as I do. That doesn't mean a whole lot, but those are alternatives that will at least give you a foundation. Now, you're still not going to have the paper that I was talking about, and eventually you might have to bite the bullet and go that route, but those are some things that you can do if this is a time in your life that you can't afford to do the the university. So I went to university and I studied 
information systems at the time. And what I yep. observed as a young person when I was doing that, so we're going back to 2005, six, I believe, five, six, seven, okay. was that already the university course was out of date with what I was learning on the internet at the time when it came to the World Wide Web. And this irked me a little because I was paying good money for a good institution to get a piece of paper, a credential that said that I knew this this thing. And I just wonder mm -hmm. how up to date are the universities now with the way in which the field is practiced? That's a fantastic question. That's one of the problems that I found with the university experience as a whole. I've actually, I don't know, you, you won't find this online about me. I know you said you did some research. This one you won't find. I conducted what I like to refer to as the quintessential ethnographic study in that, uh, jokingly, of course, when I say that. I went to multiple universities. Yes, I graduated from Syracuse. Yes, I graduated from Kent State. But I also went to other nameless institutions. I'm not going to name them today. Uh, but I went to other universities. And in those universities, I left because the experiences were not right. They were outdated. Uh, they were irrelevant. Uh, and people want relevance when they have a learning experience. Well, why go through a learning program if I can't do anything with what they're teaching me? And that's the hook for the boot camps, right? <laughs> that's what that's what that's what the hook is, isn't it? It's like that's you will be claim. industry ready inside of six months or whatever the time frame is. That is what people want to hear, <laughs> and it's what yeah. people want to believe. But it really is and a then, buyer beware situation, is what I'm hearing from you. Big time, yes. Caveat emptor, big time. I have worked with X number of boot camp grads over the course of my career. And I only, of all the people, and I'm not going to apologize for it, deciding a fact, only one of them really brought anything to the table. And the person that did feels that their boot camp experience was worthless. And they went back and added something on top of it. Everybody who came out of the boot camp and wanted to tout the boot camp as the best thing since sliced bread, as we say, using that old that old saying, were nightmarish, absolutely nightmarish to work with. What was it about them? Dunning, usually it's a Dunning-Kruger, the common threat, Dunning-Kruger bias, Dunning-Kruger mm -hmm. bias. Mm -hmm. they, they, they put themselves on pedestals. They, um, tapping into my current series on emotional intelligence, they, they have severe uh, inferiority complexes. I love building people. I don't care. You went to a boot camp. I don't care. I'm going to build you. I mean, you're going to need what I call a cognitive enema <laughs> because you got to, and, and it's harder to unlearn something than it is to learn it. So now before I can teach you something, you got to unlearn because they don't teach people information architecture. They, they don't teach people to respect the history of the discipline. They really don't, which if you're going to go forward, you actually need to, because you need to know where we're coming from. Yeah. Let's go in. <laughs> let's go into that then, because I have heard you talk about needing to understand the, the history of the discipline and where it's come from in order to be an effective practitioner. What is it about understanding the road that has already been walked that makes someone a more effective UXer? Understanding where we've come from, one of the biggest things that I find to be key is those methodologies, the, the information architecture, the stuff that's in the polar bear book, that stuff's not outdated at all. And when you understand how the, the shifts how the work has come about, what I talk about the four pillars of UX. When you get into the history, you got to understand what the four pillars are. Whereas if you get into what I'm now starting to call the cult of UX, 
those things aren't included. So they want they want you to start talking about design thinking. And I'm going, and, they, and the first thing we're going to do is empathize. Everything that they're claiming in design thinking, we were already doing. So you basically are taking things we were already doing, slapping a new name on it. And so when you know the history and we understand what was being practiced, you won't become victimized by things like this. You won't be, you won't think, wait a minute, empathize. What's your, can you explain that to me? Then when they explain it, aren't we doing that when we conduct research? Are we learning more about other people's perspectives when we find out how they use it? We find out what their, what their pain points are, when we understand their mental models. We were already doing all of that. So you get to call it something new. And then now we're supposed to now put you on a pedestal because you came up with a, you went to a closet and came out with a new word. People who don't know the history are all, they're all right for being impressed by these newfangled things. And they're really not, they're not new. They're actually old. Yeah, I get that. I get how understanding the history will help you become more aware of people trying to sell you things that are, are really just repackaged ways of thinking about old problems or That's trying it. to solve old problems. Now, I've heard you talk about design thinking before, and it doesn't seem to hold. You don't seem to have any uh, any love in your heart for it. You've said, Not and really. I'll quote you now, what they're doing is they're taking things that we are already doing in UX and just calling it design thinking. They're not doing anything differently, which is pretty yeah. much what you just said, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but what I'm curious about, I'm curious about who is the they. So if UX is in what I get a, a sense of from you, you feel like it's in a bit of crisis. We have yes. these people that are selling the snake oil. And we have people perhaps who are practicing it in a way that um, isn't true to the history of the origins of the discipline. Who is they? If you could, if I mean, I'm not asking you to, um, <laughs> to to name necessarily individuals. I don't want you to do anything that makes you uncomfortable. But like, who who is the they that is to doing me, this the, to us? The they is you made me you made me think about another saying I have is. It's not as much about the the who as it is about the what. And so there's a lot of people that are guilty of it to the extent that it. It doesn't really benefit us to know who, but it does benefit us to know the what. So the, that way we can avoid what's happening when we understand the what. You can understand, we can name one person that's doing it, and that actually is not going to help you because then you're, you're red flagging that person, and then another person comes up right behind them and does the same exact thing. So, and then because you're caught up in the, the who and not the what, you're still susceptible. So, so for that reason, I stress the, the what. And so when you say, who is they? Anybody who's guilty. <laughs> it's a really broad net. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, there are design processes have sort of mushroomed over recent years. And I know that you have a talk specifically on design process. And yep. for my way of looking at design process, it's somebody trying to articulate what it is that we do in the field of yep. design. And they do have, they are a theme on, 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 on each other. Like they all sort of have core central tenets around empathy and iteration and all these things that are qu quite central to the way in which we have become accustomed to think about doing design. Mm -hmm. But I, what, what, what I'm getting to is a, is a question in here somewhere, which is aren't these the they's that are putting out these different models and ways of thinking, which aren't that different to your point, are yeah. they not helping to normalize this field of design and UX and get it in the heads of business stakeholders and into the mainstream in order for us as practitioners 
to be able to do what it is that we've wanted to do for 20 to 30 years? I'd say no, uh, because there there is a problem in UX where uh, you probably saw this post I had last week about UX celebritism. A lot of the people that are rebranding things are doing it because it puts them on a pedestal. And if you're putting yourself on a pedestal, then you really don't care that much about the discipline. If we imagine with all these people coming in, one person's talking about devil diamond, another person's talking about design thinking, another person's talking about, we call it a uh, waterfall, who wears a, a mix of agile and, well, agile fall, as we got agile fall, <laughs> where they're mixing agile and waterfall. And everybody's got all these different things that are going on. How much further along would the discipline be if we were more unified, not necessarily all doing things the same exact way, but if if there was more continuity and, and, and a bit more cohesiveness with UX's presentation, would we not be further along? And you know, right? How, how much further along would we be because you have organizational UX maturity levels, personal UX maturity level, which nobody talks about, and you have the discipline-wide UX maturity level. And the discipline-wide UX maturity level as one that's always gathering data to understand it in talking to people around the world in hiring practices and just getting just, just massive data points. The discipline-wide UX maturity level is grossly off target. And part of the reason is too many people are saying too many different things. And then when you get up and you say, we should be doing this, then you get a group of people that accuses you of being a gatekeeper. Mm, here we go. Not yeah. knowing that they are really demonstrating their ignorance because a gatekeeper is act. If you really look at what a gatekeeper is, and I have a project that's about to come out on this, a gatekeeper is actually a good thing. The, they say, well, why can't we be certified like, and then they, they always mention them in unison, doctors or accountants or lawyers. Number one, the work we do is not on that level, number one. And we definitely don't have the longevity. How long did it take them to get mature? How long? Because they have maturity levels too. And all three of those fields are mature. How long did it take for them to get there? What, thousands of years for for the medical practice? You read about medical doctors going back, you know, a lot of these things. So why mention us in, who've been around only in the mainstream for 20 to 25 years in the mainstream? We existed before that, but we're in, in the mainstream. Why do people mention us in the same breath as disciplines that have been around for a long time and have had the opportunity to mature and have full, you don't find a university that don't have programs in any one of those three things that, that I mentioned. UX still barely scratching the surface. So it's going to be a while before we get there, but we, we need to be better. We need to be better about the way that we represent the discipline and, 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 and not try to put ourselves on a pedestal. So there is no normalization. That, that, that's not what's going to back to the question because I'm about to get off track. <laughs> the, reel myself in here, the normalization is not going to occur until people drop their egos. It won't. It simply won't. And that's the biggest problem. One of the biggest problems today. Uh, plagiarism is huge in UX. And it's accepted because people don't know the history. Somebody would not have been able to write a book taking information that already exists. And I'm trying not to say what the book was in this particular, and I would, but I'm just not going to do it. I'm not afraid to do it. I do, I've done it before. So if somebody wrote a book and they took information that you could, you and I could have Googled. And I had Googled. I already knew the information that was in the, in the book, which is why I was so outspoken about it. But the person did all this, put together a book, and took a little psychological factor. And the only thing they did was create an icon for each one of the psychological factors, rolled it out. And everybody was like, oh, this is the best thing I've ever seen. This stuff's already existed. All they did was create an icon. 
That's it. But people, when you know these things, you're not, wait a minute, why is this person doing this? This stuff is all on the IEF website, on the Interaction Design Foundation their Encyclopedia. So, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that I could go extract certain related things from out of their encyclopedia, create an icon, and somebody's going to publish the book, and everybody's going to think it's the best thing since sliced bread, and think that I've really opened people's eyes? No, they just, they're just new. And, but if, you, if you're new and you're coming in and you learn the history, and this keeps happening over and over again, and it's a type of plagiarism. So, no, that's not, they're not doing the... Let's come back to what you were saying about gatekeepers and yeah. the lack of standards is, is what I heard when you were talking about that, about how we judge ourselves. To what degree do we hold ourselves to? And I've seen, I've seen the medical side of that because my wife is almost through her ophthalmology training, which is to become an eye doctor and nice. eye surgeon. And so I've seen the extreme of what they put doctors through to earn mm-hmm. those letters that go after their name and to enable them yep. to, to, to practice surgery on another human. So I, I've seen that extreme. There's something like only 150 of them in New Zealand, which is a country of wow. 5 million people. So, and it will be similar ratios worldwide, right? So that's mm-hmm. one extreme. And like you said, it's been built on thousands of years of history. And then you've got our discipline, which is relatively new. <laughs> what do we need? So if what we have right now isn't working for us, if we've got these aspects of plagiarism that are going on that aren't being called out, if we've got institutions training the next generation of UXs but aren't really doing them justice, yeah. what is it? What is our middle ground? What is our thing that we're lacking in the moment that if we had would make us a more effective field and a more unified field? What a fantastic question. And it's one that I don't have a perfect answer for it. And it's because what I would have said if you have, we were doing this seven years ago, we just need to strengthen education and blah, blah, blah. I understand that it's more complex than that. I mean, theoretically speaking and figuratively speaking, education, if we could come together and, okay, what are the tenets? What are the fundamentals of this discipline? Can we agree upon that? Okay, if we can agree upon that, let's put together an educational track that revolves around that. There is something similar. Someone else realized that that's the key. It is the key. The reason that I said that I can't answer it is because while I know that that's the key, getting it done is is another story that requires the the resolution in other areas because I know that Don Norman has been working on something like that. And and I'm going to borrow from one of my peers, Debbie Levitt, who said that he's working on it, but it is being done at an academic pace. It is. So that means that it's going to, knowing what I know, that's what I'm getting my PhD in. That takes a while to get it done. So we've got time. That's an issue. And, And because UX is an infinite science and it has a lot of moving parts, while they're working on things, the things that need to go into that are changing. I don't know if they're keeping their eye on things that are changing so they can modify what they're proposing. But that's not the problem, the biggest problem. It's a problem, but it's a standard problem. The biggest problem is there are people who are partnering. I'm going to get in trouble for this one, but there are people who are partnering with Don Norman that don't have a horse in the race. And so because there are people that are supposedly partnering to resolve UX educational issues that are not part of UX education's leadership, there's no way they're going to come up with the right answer. There are organizations that are contributing to the current spiral of problems that we have in UX that are sitting on that committee that are working. So they're, they're not going, matter of fact, and, and they heard me say this on social media 
and reached out to me to get my input because I'm trying to protect the the uh, trying to protect my my people who are working on this project. Folks are so busy protecting folks that they that people in UX are spending more time protecting people's feelings and egos than they are protecting the integrity of the discipline. And so no matter what they're trying to do about education, if that work continues on the trajectory it's on, they're going to say, hey, we came up with some standards, but I already know they're going to be wrong. They're going to be wrong. And then the wrong thing is going to be instituted and everybody is going to everybody being in a general consensus. They're going to get up and they're going to say, hey, we've got a standard now. We've been looking for this for years. But Darren Hood is on record right now telling you that that thing that they're doing. Love you, Don Norman. But what you're doing, that's wrong. It's going to it's going to come out the wrong way because the wrong people are part of the of the the solution. What is it that you fear will result from those people working on those standards what is it what is it specifically that is is wrong what is it that's going to do a disservice to the field that's an easy one it's going to it's going to render biased solutions that are going to play out to make them look like heroes and to foster people into their already established faux ux uh type of of way of thinking that is already part of the problem to begin with that, in short, that's basically it. That uh, uh, IBM, who is, I might as well say it because it is actually common knowledge. IBM has a huge volume of people working on that project. IBM hasn't done anything for UX. I used to work for IBM. I know what IBM, I know what UX is like in IBM, even though that was going back to 2013. I know that it hasn't advanced very much since then. Matter of fact, the fact that they are touting design thinking, even though design thinking is easily shot down by anyone with an ounce of critical thinking, if IBM is trying to get companies to adopt their design thinking methodology, do we really think that they're going to come up with a proper educational solution working with Don Norman? Or are they going to do that that biased approach and infuse a lot of what is what they come up with to make sure that it taps into the things that IBM is prescribing? They're definitely going to do it. So it sounds like the the issue that you you take with this initiative is the impartiality, the lack of impartiality yes, between exactly. the commercial sector and the future generation of practitioners. Exactly, and the average person isn't going to see IBM and go, "Oh, IBM, I don't know." That's not what people are going to say. People are starstruck. They hear IBM and they go, "Ooh." They hear Google and they go, "Ooh." They hear Facebook, Meta. And they go, ooh, they hear Amazon and they go, ooh, and they don't think that these companies can do any wrong. But when it comes to UX, big names don't mean a thing. There was a fantastic article that somebody shared in the UX community today about how Ideo's design thinking was was applied. Uh, I think it was Ideo that actually did the work. They came in and applied their design thinking to some municipality and, and almost destroyed a city. Yeah, good job design thinking. I call design thinking glorified uh, spitballing. And, and, it, and it's a way to unleash uh, IKEA, IKEA uh, bias, uh, basically because people get excited when they're involved in the solution. It doesn't mean the solution is right. You just got a bunch of people in a room and they came up with something. Yeah, they're going to come out and tout it and say that it's great because they got IKEA effect bias. Where's the where's the voice of reason in the room that says that what you came out with is not going to work? Where's the heuristic impact? 
the heuristic analysis, that thing that we should do. I gave a talk on heuristic analysis once and, and the people went into a riot when they heard about it. They refused to accept it when heuristics should be one of the first things that people learn, but they don't learn it. And now you, and, and, and they hear the term and then they get that buzzwordy reaction. And then I, I, I mean, I, I spoke to somebody recently and I started talking about heuristics. The person never used the word heuristics in their life. And then after I said it, they start talking about heuristics. Like, uh, well, you had impact, years. Darren. <laughs> no, that's impact, right? You got them talking the language. <laughs> that's a fair step, isn't it? I, no, that's actor. When they're talking, those are actors. We got enough actors out there. They, they got another word to throw into their script, and then they improv and go and not, start acting like they know what you're talking about. No, they, you don't know. I know this is unfiltered, and this is exactly what we called for. Okay, <laughs> so this is this is what we wanted. We wanted this conversation to be, you know, the the real Darren Hood, the real unfiltered UX. But there are po- probably some people out there listening to this episode thinking that. Darren, your views are overly cynical and perhaps a little bit negative. What do you say to those people? That's fantastic. I'm glad you said that. Uh, number one, I recommend you to my post on Medium that talks about toxic positivity because it is, and that's one of the things I talk about in my series on emotional intelligence. If you have a nail in your car, in your in your tire, you need to know that. And when somebody comes along and says, hey, you got a nail in your tire, it's great that you know that because now people classify that as negative. Is it negative or is it life-saving? And and I'm also on record of saying that there actually is no such thing as negative. Unless we're talking about batteries, in a sense, there's no such thing as negative. There is constructive and there is destructive. Now, I challenge people who think that what I'm saying is negative, flip it. it. Look at it from a perspective of constructive or destructive. If you listen to what I'm saying, is it destructive? Because on that, from that perspective, destructive would be parallel with negative and positive and negative and then constructive would be negative would be parallel with positive. So if you look at what I'm saying, what would happen to you if you paid attention to what I said and actually implemented something to counter it? Would it build you? You better believe it would. So that means it's not destructive. So if it's not destructive, how is it negative? So if you have a nail in your tire, you need to know, or you're going to end up going on a freeway somewhere and you're going to have a blowout. So if you get an attitude, I actually have a comic strip, uh, which I'm sure you've seen. And there's uh, an upcoming episode that I'm working on where there's four frames. And in one frame, the person sees a, a road sign that's warning, warning him on something on the line of the bridge being out. Oh, I'm glad I knew that. And then he comes across a second sign and he, see, he sees that the uh, there's uh, construction or something like that. Oh, I'm glad I see that. Basically a sequence of seeing warning signs and being grateful but then see the last frame is the person seeing somebody saying something on social media about UX and then and then becoming hostile because basically it contradicts your biases. And so that's not negative. It's these things are are and I've had people tell me that before, but I know better. And and, and I know that if you want to succeed, you need to identify all pitfalls, all roadblocks, all mountains. And you need to have a strategy for each one. So everything that I'm saying is actually constructive. And and what I found is that people who see it as negative, keep watching those same people. Just keep watching them. Watch and see what happens as they ignore all of these warnings, as they ignore inf- downloads about the pitfalls. There are pitfalls in UX. If you don't learn about them, I almost walked away from UX in about 2007, 2008, because I ran into the pitfalls and nobody Nobody told me about them, 
And when it happened, it it blew my mind. And I couldn't believe, what do you mean they're not going to pay attention? I, it just, it, it completely freaked me out. And one day somebody gave me some constructive input and it changed everything. And they said, there is such a thing as healthy friction. And when I, when I heard that, I went, wow, you're right. And it completely changed. And ever since then, those crazy discussions that happened with, within UX and those crazy pushing back by clients, all of those things just basically melted away. They no longer floor me. Do they frustrate you? Yeah, it frustrates you at times, but it's not going to flatten me and it's not going to run me out of the discipline. Uh, and I remember you probably heard me tell this story before as well, where when I first got involved and I was doing a lot more visual design earlier on in, in my UX uh, pathways. And back in the day of the discussion group, the BBS and the discussion area news groups uh, before there was a Facebook or anything like that, uh, earlier days of the internet. And we were discussing graphic tools and somebody had said, yeah, you know, really enjoy talking to you. When you get serious, you might want to switch over to Photoshop. I was using Corel Photo Paint to deal with photos at the time, which at the time wasn't bad, but it wasn't the granddaddy. You know, if you really wanted to be for real, you really need to be in Photoshop. And you know, I know that now, but the guy said, Yeah, but who could have afforded serious? that license back then, right? Like, what was it, yeah. like $3,000 or something ridiculous? <laughs> it was. It was crazy. Yeah. But then there was a way to get into it inexpensively, which I ended up doing. I went and bought a license right after that, but it, it floored me because I thought I was serious. So when he said, when you get serious, then go to Photoshop. And I'm going, well, wait a minute. I am serious. Well, let's get into this, serious. actually. Let's get into this because <laughs> when someone says something like that to you, that is potentially gaslighting or something to that effect, right? And I know that recently you've riled against the rise of imposter syndrome that oh, yeah. has presented itself all, in, in almost every discipline, not just UX. There's been right, a huge right. amount of people declaring themselves as imp imposters in public, um, largely on social media. And I'll, I'll quote, quote you now just so that people have some context for what you've said about this in the past. You've said that um, these people have absolutely no reason to doubt who they are, but succumb to yep. doing so anyway. So when you, know, when you give that example of that person gaslighting you about using Corel when they they use Photoshop sort of lording that over you. How did you react or internalize that that was different to how someone who might claim to be feeling like an imposter, like that statement that that person made could could make someone feel like? How how did you treat that opportunity to to respond and how did you respond? When when that person told me I'll say they weren't gaslighting me. In that setting, that person was not gaslighting me. And from his perspective, from his perspective, he wasn't being a jerk either. That was his okay. perspective. Right. That was his perspective. And, and I respect that. And I think if we, I respected him and what he said. And, and we had a relationship. We were talking a lot. And I knew his expertise. He had been doing what, what he was doing a whole lot longer than I was. And so for him to say that, it floored me because of the part about when you were serious when you get serious and he, in his mind, I wasn't serious yet, but I wouldn't call it gaslighting. He was just sharing his perspective. When people are gaslighting, they have knowledge that they're spinning some, they're, they're spinning, they're doing a little Jedi mind trick. They know that they're, that they're doing so. And I could tell stories about that, but I won't go down that road right now unless you ask me later. But I recognize, wow, I really, if I want to get better, I do have to raise my game. 
I've been working with Corel. It's been perfect for what I've been doing thus far, but I need to go. I need to go up. Are you willing to rise up and do something better? Are you willing to be more? You've been successful so far doing what you're doing in Corel. I had been the managing editor. This isn't common knowledge, but I had been the managing editor of a publication that was being published in Corel Draw. So I had the whole Corel. I went all the way up to Corel eight, I think, before I or nine or t- somewhere between between eight and ten before I walked away from Corel Draw. But uh, and 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 the little uh, uh, sub pieces there. But I realized that what the person was saying, it had merit, and I was willing to never talk to him again. It wasn't because of what they said. It just worked out that way that we just never talked again, but it changed me for the better. And I tell that story in one of my, in one of my blog posts on medium, it changed me forever, forever. And and I remember working at a bank in Detroit and realized that if I want to get better at UX, I, there's a ceiling on what I can, what I was talking about earlier. We, our trajectory is determined by where we work. And I knew that if I stayed at that bank, that I was not going to grow. When it came to UX, I simply wasn't going to grow. And so I did the same exact thing that came up with, with Corel. So when somebody makes a statement and that statement, is, it floors you or it doesn't match what you felt your perception of yourself was. And there is room for growth. And, and that's that self-awareness part of, of EQ. There is room for me to grow. I can be better. I can do more. I don't know anything about Photoshop. I Was I serious? I was serious. But there was still something, some room for growth. So I humbled myself, another EQ component, being humble, not so caught up in what I felt I was and not not uh, celebrating my accomplishments to the point that it kept me in that state. I was willing to to grow. And, and I encourage people to do the same. You may have been, you may have been in a boot camp and you may have been dead on serious about it, but there's other levels. There's other things you can do. If I can throw that example in there and I'm not, I'm not, demonizing people who go to boot camps. It's just that I've been in the same position, not necessarily at a UX boot camp, but there was when there's something higher to ascend to, I want to do it. Remember, if I touch it, got to excel at it. So if that if that's the name of the game, then hey, are you excelling right now? Actually no. All right, then let's let's go. And and when you opt into UX, it's a it's a lifelong learning and it's a never ending growth pattern. So where I am today, 26 years, but I'm still trying to get better. I'm still trying to do more. Do I know everything? Nope, never will, because there's always something being piled on to to all the things that we know and do. So there's always going to be something to grow in. And and even when we do something, you always immediately want to look at what can I do to be better. Now, I bowled two, two 300 games, and the first thing I thought about after I threw the last 300 was, what could I have done better? That was my first reaction. I didn't celebrate the 300. What could I do better? It's just the way. It's just the way it is. Constant state of dissatisfaction, even Kaizen. with your even with your own your own success. Yeah, that is something Kaizen. that affects. Yeah, <laughs> guys, and right, it affects affects a lot of people. I, w- I want to come back to imposter syndrome, though, and your story that you told there. Clearly, that wasn't something that affected you. You became aware of another level that you could get to and that's that almost that conscious you became conscious of your incompetence and saw that as a challenge rather than being an imposter so what is it at the moment that and it's not just in ux as i said but what is it at the Mm -hmm. moment that is making people come forward and declare 
that they are imposters in their in their discipline? What is it that's driving people to do this? And are they imposters? Oh boy, yeah, people aren't going to like this. In my observations, the reason that a lot of people are doing it is because it's a pinnacle. It is what I call a pinnacle uh, acknowledgement that because a lot of the people that I've seen that claim to be imposters never try to get beyond that. So it's a pinnacle acknowledgement. I am an imposter. Like it's, it's a badge. They, they do it like it's a badge of honor. And I come across people who say that they're imposters. They feel they're imposters. They say they have imposter syndrome and they really don't labor to get beyond that. When I did my blog, my blog post on on the truth about imposter syndrome, okay, this is where you are. This is how you feel. And I say, it's not really imposter syndrome. It's usually either self-doubt or you're just going through standard growing pains where you got you, you lack confidence. And everybody feels that way at some time. It doesn't mean we're, we're all a bunch of imposters walking down the street together. We, I got imposter syndrome. You, I, I have it too. No, you're having some self-doubt. You're wondering about whether or not you should be doing this, whether or not you're qualified, whatever the case may be. But you know what? When the time comes, you're going to get up and you're going to try to get yourself equipped as best you can and go and execute. Now, that's that's the wise thing to do, not to sit here. You don't do you want a doctor with imposter syndrome removing your kidney? Really? I don't think so. And and, and do you want to work next to somebody and do work on a on a. Uh, some do UX on something that has life or death connotations associated with it. Does anybody, can anybody afford for either of you, say there's two people on the team or three, can anybody afford for any of you to be imposters or feel like you're imposters? That's a dangerous state of mind to be in. If you don't know something, then go learn it. This is key. Yeah, and there's, you, exactly. you, you wrote something else in that post <laughs> that actually really made me think about the that trend to declare imposter syndrome. And that was that it's generally, in terms of the academic literature, it is a, a syndrome that's not actually a, a psychological syndrome, but it is yeah. experienced by people that have already achieved a high level of achievement. Yeah. So it's people yeah. that are at the top of their field that regardless of their credentials, regardless of what other people say about them, they still don't feel like they belong. And yeah. if you are experiencing the, the, the so-called imposter syndrome and you haven't reached the top of your field and you don't have people lauding you for how <laughs> great you are, then yes, you are just experiencing self-doubt. And I think like, yep. again, I don't think it's a pop, it probably wasn't a popular thing for you to write, but when you think about that, that is so true. Like if anything, you're, you're an imposter claiming imposter syndrome if you haven't reached <laughs> the top of your field. And exactly. I think it is actually so refreshing to, 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 was so refreshing to read that and, and have it, have a spade called a spade as we say here. And I'm not sure if you exactly. say over there when it comes yeah, to things like yeah, that, we do. like you are just yeah. learning, you are learning and that is okay, but you and need to, fine. you need to put that somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, you need to put it somewhere, right? Realize there's another level yeah. and then close that gap. You know, and the research you just mentioned, something else I thought about when you said that was that true, if imposter syndrome was indeed a thing, it's only afforded to those individuals. And the other piece is it's something that's more people who are perfectionists are more prone to being in that state of mind. Not just any old Tom, Dick, and Harry. People that aren't happy with their but, second 300, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I mean, these people are, so they, they claim it, and in their minds, what I have observed is that once they claim it, they no longer have to get better. 
because every time somebody calls them out, oh, I have imposter syndrome. Oh, I have imposter. And I see people like parading it around like it's something to be proud of. There's also something <laughs> there's also something else in here which I want to raise with you, which is in, in your article, you mentioned in there that it's something that affects women more than men and also people that come from minority races. Yeah. And there's almost something disingenuous for for the masses or people that aren't mm-hmm. from from minorities to claim that they are experiencing that irrespective of their level of achievement if they do not really truly understand why that term was coined and who actually <laughs> legitimately experiences this. And, you know, as an African-American man who is operating in the world of UX for a quarter century, this is something that I really wanted to ask you about because you, of course, yes. bring to bear that perspective, which is have you ever felt in this field of UX as if, as an African-American man as if you were an imposter? No, I never have. If I ever – have there been times where I felt that I – needed to up my game. Absolutely. And I'm always looking for that. Mm-hmm. If I remember, okay, so I did my first, I created my first website in 95 using what we now know as UX principles. So that's why I claim that some people get mad at me about that. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's true. If other people are claiming stuff and they're lying, I might as well claim that because it really happened. But as you fast forward throughout my career, even when I got my first full-time UX role, I felt really, really confident when I was in that role, but I was just always looking for opportunities to improve. And I, and I, right now, as I sit here, I'm looking for opportunities to, to improve about whatever, whatever I touch. When I went to my next gig, cause I said, if I stay here at the bank, I'm going to limit my growth. And I went to one of the largest digital agencies in Metro Detroit. I immediately went from the bank to Wonderman, Wonderman digital and was working there And I saw gaps. I saw, wow, these people have more on the ball than me when it comes to certain things. I didn't go into inferiority complex mode. I didn't think I was an imposter. I knew I wasn't an imposter. I knew what I, I knew who I was and what I was. And that's again, why I said that EQ is so critical because you always need to know who and where, what, where you are so that you can always manage things. But I, I saw this person is really good at that. I need to start studying that more. This person is good as this. I need to study this one. So I would see gaps and then looking at the discipline as well as a whole, what can I do to get better? So I didn't, I never saw myself as an imposter and that was never, it never even crossed my mind. It was just, what can I do to improve, 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 improve. And that's what I did. Your question does remind me though, about one instance where I was working with a group of people and someone presented the same question and they, uh, without the minority piece being a part of it. And they said, do you, do you ever feel, they asked a whole group of us, do you ever feel like you're an imposter? And immediately the entire room turned me off. Like nobody, we were on a zoom call. Nobody wanted to hear what I was saying. I raised my hand. I tried to talk. They would talk over me. I typed my response in the chat. Nobody paid attention to it. And I finally got a moment because I believe in being polite on conference calls, unlike a lot of things I've experienced, but uh, for what that's worth. But I eventually got a chance to put my two cents out there. And I said, I've never felt like an imposter, but I've had people try to impute uh, an imposter state onto me. Now that's where the folks were gaslighting. 
where they tried to make me feel I was something that I'm not because they had something to gain by me being what they were fabricating. So and when, they wanted you to <laughs> they wanted you to answer in the affirmative. Yeah, they did. And mm. so when I told them that no, but I've had other people try to make me feel like an imposter, those same people that wouldn't let me talk, the same people who were talking over me, the same people who wouldn't read my my chat note in Zoom, some of them never talked to me again. And to this day haven't said a single solitary thing to me. Because they because I so some of the people who opt in to this whole imposter thing are doing it also because they get accepted by other people. They it's it's more acceptable to be an imposter, a quote unquote imposter, than it is for somebody to be an expert. And and people who a lot of people who claim to be imposter, gonna see an imposter that's not an imposter, or or an imposter claiming imposter a person, let me back up. Wanna see a person claiming imposter syndrome that's re- actually an imposter? Those people have issues with experts and you can't have issues with an expert and want to be an expert because the love, the love affairs with expertise, not with, with people. It, it's, you know, if I want to measure up your, your wife is trying to be, be an ophthalmologist. She'll admire some people who've done a lot, but she's always racing with and comparing herself to the standards, the Hippocratic oath calls for such. And so the same thing applies. I'm actually doing a, a, a job, uh, uh, something for that that uh, hopefully is going to be with the folks over in uh, the UK, uh, the uh, tech circus folks. I think that's what we call. Uh, I'm actually talking about doing a talk for them called UX and the Good Doctor because there are parallels between the Hippocratic Oath and what we should be doing as UX professionals. So you can't, you know, it, it's just amazing how people, you know, I get accused of being a gatekeeper because I, which really all that means is that I'm a quality advocate, but they don't know that that's what they're saying. You love quality. We don't like you. What? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. So, yeah. So I, I've never felt like an imposter and I make sure I'm going to make sure that I'm not because I'm always going to labor to make sure that I'm, that I'm qualified. And now I have a much clearer sense of why people claiming imposter syndrome makes you angry in a, in a positive sense because you you don't want <laughs> you don't want people to to claim that for themselves now yeah darren you are clearly someone who is very determined very honest and you've been very successful in achieving and pursuing your goals what's your message for the people who are listening today who may not have yet found their lion within I would say, and I'm going to refer to one of my talks that I, I got called in to deliver this talk for uh, an automobile, a leading automobile manufacturer to a team of about 30 UXers. And then I was able to deliver it later. Uh, and it's the talk I did on the UX cycle of excellence. So if I had to leave one thing, embrace the UX cycle of excellence and, you know, tweak it as you need to, but you got to have that plan because none of us is going to achieve excellence by osmosis. None of us will. So we have to put, what are you going to do? Uh, I did a talk on my podcast about building a PLN, build a, that's part of it. Build a personalized learning network, tap into sound, trustworthy resources that will help you to grow. Cause it doesn't matter where you are in your journey. You always need to tap into somebody else. You always need to listen. And, and because it's the perspectives of others that help to sharpen us. We can never, the, uh, the knife, the sharp knife in the drawer would never get any sharper. It's not until you come into contact with another knife that's just as sharp as you or sharper, and then you bring those knives together, and now you can begin to to uh, optimize the sharpening process. But if you keep hanging around plastic knives, there's <laughs> that's not going to work. 
<laughs> you can't you can't get sharpened against plastic knives. And the plastic knives, they they like to boast because they can cut bologna, you know, lunch meat and things like that. But you can't sharpen anybody. There's certain things that plastic knives can't do. So don't be a plastic knife. Subscribe to excellence. <laughs> Subscribe to excellence. And, and, and you'll always, not only will you excel, but you will be a, a truly be a benefit to everybody that you, that you encounter. And that makes the discipline work. I definitely feel sharper having had this conversation. I have really appreciated the unfiltered nature of it as well. And I just want to Absolutely. say thank you for so generously and openly sharing your stories and experiences today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. As always, I love I love sharing with the community and I wish everybody the best in your oh, yeah. next journey. You're most welcome and it's much appreciated, Darren. If people want to find out more about you, about UX Unfiltered, about the podcast, all the great things that you do, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, my goodness. I would say the best way is LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. That's probably where I spend most of my time. People reach out to me. I'm everywhere. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Uh, we have a private social media network that we established not too long ago. Uh, some people are connecting out there. Uh, but LinkedIn is probably the the best way Perfect. to connect with me. Yep. Thanks, Darren. And to everyone that's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. We will be linking to everything that Darren has mentioned there as to how you can find Darren, all the things that he is up to in the show notes on YouTube and also on the podcast, on the audio platforms as well. If you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review on the podcast, subscribe to it, and also pass it along if you feel that there's someone else that would get some value out of these kind of conversations. And if you want to reach out to me, you can also find my LinkedIn profile in the show notes at the very bottom, or you can head on over to thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey,